Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. I'm Ben Kiefer with River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. Today you're listening to an encore edition of the program. Cultural appropriation. That's something we've been hearing about in our news a great deal lately appropriating, you know, taking or using things from a culture that is not your own, especially without showing that you respect the culture or or even understand it. Well, it turns out that cultural appropriation has been going on for a very long time. Religious scholar Sarah Dees of Iowa State University has just come out with a paper that examines how so-called Indian remedies from the 1800s were appropriated marketed and sold, Uh, the Native American narratives hijacked, so to speak, uh, misrepresented to make a profit. Uh, She says that by examining these historical instances, we can better understand what's going on in the present day. Her article was published in the journal American Religion. It's titled Before and Beyond the New Age, Historical Appropriation of Native Medicine and Spirituality, and she joins us in our Ames studio today. Sarah Dees, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Uh, Sarah, you are an assistant professor of American religions at ISU. Let's dig into this. How did this all start for you? Uh, how did you get to, uh, to this idea, become interested in it? Yeah, well, I have been interested in the history of representations of indigenous religions. So that's something that I focused on. I did my master's in Iowa City at uh, the University of Iowa in religious studies and a certificate in American Indian and Native Studies while I was there. And when I started doing graduate work, that's this question of the representation of indigenous religions was something that was interesting to me. And so it's something that I pursued for a while. And I actually stumbled across this company and work that I was doing while I was in my graduate program, uh, my PhD program at Indiana University. And I, I know, I've know i known that this is a big issue, this question of religious appropriation, of cultural appropriation. It's uh, mm-hmm. something that people are still talking about. It's, it's really important. And what I noticed was that scholars of religion often were talking about New Agers or New Age religion as this main group that was appropriating not just indigenous spirituality, but also features of um, other traditions as well from around the world, um, Buddhism and, and Hinduism, and kind of creating this amalgamation of different spiritual practices. And so in a lot of cases, when I was reading work about spiritual appropriation, people kept coming back to the New Age, uh, 1960s and onward. And then I, mm-hmm. I came across these historical sources of from the 1800s, these advertisements. I was doing searches in um, databases that contained a lot of historical newspapers and started to see these really interesting advertisements that were purporting to sell, you know, this is in quotes, Indian medicines, because they weren't. <laughs> they were completely fabricated um, and started digging into um, these business practices, the the items that they were selling, patent medicines, snake oils, um, and started asking questions about you know how and why they were trying to make money in this way, and um, and what what narratives they were they were using they were sharing in order to justify this type of 
of practice. Mm-hmm. And and I understand your research came to focus on a company that no longer has long since not existed, the Kickapoo Indian Medicine Company. Uh, tell us about that company, when it was founded, how and by whom. Yeah, so this is one of the most famous companies of its kind. It's certainly not the only one. Um, but I want to point out at the outset that the Kickapoo Nation is a, an actual nation. They're, they're Kickapoo mm. um, people, they're, they're tribal affiliation. So this is actually an instance in which outsiders latched onto this, this nation's name and used it as their own name and tried to suggest that they were authorities on Kickapoo practices, um, but they really had no connection to the nation. Um, so they got started in the 1870s, and this was a point in time in which um, there were a lot of different uh, concerns about mainstream medical practices. There were very sort of dangerous substances that doctors were prescribing, and um, there became a market for supposedly natural remedies. And this is something that companies were were creating these, you know, completely bogus remedies, um, but were selling them. And also there was, there was an, an entertainment element as well with their sales. And so this was a point in time in which there are a lot of traveling shows that would go from town to town. And in some cases, Native folks, so people who are Indigenous, decided to become a part of these uh, communities of, of, the, of these groups, um, which sometimes gave them agency, gave them the ability to travel. But still, it was these generally white owners that were creating these shows, were bringing them around from town to town. And so um, some of these these techniques were used by salespeople who would try to sell these bogus remedies and would provide entertainment to townspeople to try to sell their products, would do demonstrations or even have musical events. Entertainment fe- um, yeah, entertainment featuring Native American people that were along on the some, on the bandwagon. Yeah, yeah. In some cases, yes. And then there, but then there are also there's this concern about non-Native people who are uh, playing Indian, who are dressing up and acting as though they are Native when they're not, oh. and you know, creating mm-hmm. this own this this narrative. And this is something that it continues to be a really important conversation um, today of you know outsiders donning. Uh, clothing and acting like they're indige- indigenous, acting like they're native, um, in order to kind of, in, in this case, both entertain uh, audience members, but also to try to turn a profit, to try to convince people to buy these medicines. Yeah. Sarah, th- there's so much here to unpack, which you've just summarized here. I want to go uh, to, 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 a, to a few of the points that... Um, let's talk about the fact that this was a reaction, and you referenced it to some of the Western medicines um, that were much different, harsh, even deadly, bloodletting and so forth. Mm-hmm. So this made, mm-hmm. uh, this was a, a reaction in a way to that, and the appeal was recognized, hey, this is much different, and it won't <laughs> have you lose a bunch of uh, blood or have you take mercury, poison. Exactly. Yeah. So some of these common medical practices were, in, in fact, could be deadly or really uncomfortable and dangerous. And so there was this allure of medicines that would be all natural, really healthy. And um, that's something that consumers were interested in like, around the United States. 
Um, and so these companies, these these you know so-called Indian medicine companies, latched onto that and used it to their advantage. Um, but what they did was they drew on this very stereotypical idea of a native person as being a, a beacon of health, and um, and used stereotypical imagery and, and stories in order to convince non-native people to buy these remedies. And and this is where I, I think it's really important for us to understand the historical context because these companies were operating in the late 1800s, early 1900s, when actually U.S. federal Indian policies were making it very difficult for actual Native people to engage in their traditional practices. And so there were there were laws banning traditional dances. There were efforts on the part of the U.S. government to go after um, medicine leaders and healers and to really make it very difficult hmm. for Native people to actually engage in their <laughs> own traditional healing practices. And so this, is, this wow. is one of the things I wanted to highlight in this study is that there's a huge disparity between, you know, what actually is possible for Native people at this time whose practices are being curtailed and constrained and then these, you know, fake medicine companies that are trying, you know, pretending to sell, um, you know, so-called Indian remedies to non-native people, so there's a huge contrast there in this era. Yeah, yeah, and and what an irony that at the same time mm-hmm. that they are being appropriated these remedies and twisted, mm-hmm. the narratives changed. Uh, that at the same time, the U.S. government is restricting the authentic what you're saying, the authentic healing mm-hmm. and spiritual practices. <laughs> Right, wow. Exactly. Okay. Mm-hmm. We, mm-hmm. we have a couple minutes before a break, and I think we have enough time here for you to. I'm interested in what were the remedies rolled out by, say, the Kickapoo Indian Medicine Company? Uh, what did, were they uh, uh, supposed remedies for? You mentioned snake oil. That's been a common term that we just use in everyday mm-hmm. language now. Were there real snake oils that were sold and so forth? Reportedly so. Um, and this company didn't have anything exactly like that, although they did have a remedy for worms. If you if you if your children had worms, they had a remedy for that. Um, they had a variety of, of substances. They had a, a one famous one was called the Kickapoo Indian oil. Um, there was Indian sagua. So it was basically like any sort of type of, of, of potion. There were things you could drink. There were salves you could rub on your skin. Um, But one of the features of these types of patent medicines is that they really purported to be cure-alls. They suggested that, you know, take this remedy, it will fix, you know, all of your internal problems and take this one and it'll fix all of your external problems. So they had a whole range of, of items that they would sell, some that were sort of specific for women, some that were specific for children. Um, So there were I would say probably up to a dozen different remedies that they, different types of remedies that they tried to get people to buy. Right. And uh, as the snake oil uh, uh, connotation uh, uh, tells us, they had, they had really no, no effect on, on the, on the problems. Yeah, probably not. And so you wonder if perhaps there's some sort of placebo effect um, going Mm -hmm. on, but I've, you know, I've read research where people have, tried to see what actually is in the bottles and generally it does not align with whatever they said was in the bottles so i mean what they uh-huh. what they you know kind of going along with this all natural thing they said barks and herbs and 
you know, healthy stuff. Um, but there was no guarantee that what they said was in the bottle was actually in the bottle. Okay, we have to take a short break. We'll be back with Sarah Dees, Assistant Professor of American Religions at Iowa State University. Uh, fascinating uh, research that she has. It's uh, written a paper. She's written a paper, Before and Beyond the New Age, Historical Appropriation of Native American Medicine and Spirituality. So we're going back in history uh, to talk about this appropriation. Uh, she'll tell us more about that, the stereotypes that are being tapped into in, uh, you know, earlier in American history and how that then traces through the 20th century up until the present. That's when we return uh, with Sarah Dees. I'm Ben Kiefer. It's River to River from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. Can we heal the environment? In Kansas, we're working on it. Up From Dust is a podcast about how humans reshaped the world to fit urban landscapes and agricultural needs. We'll meet the people who are rolling up their sleeves to find more sustainable ways forward. Listen to Up From Dust from KCUR, part of the NPR Network. You're listening to an archive edition of River to River. I'm Ben Kiefer. Talking today with religious scholar Sarah Dees of Iowa State University, um, examining how uh, so-called Indian remedies from the 1800s were appropriated, marketed, sold, uh, that Native American narratives hijacked, so to speak, misrepresented to make a profit, then tracing it up to the present time and uh, New Age practices uh, beginning in the 1960s. Sarah, before we jump into the 20th century, have you continued the narrative here of what you've been investigating? Talk a little bit about the, I understand, two different stereotypes uh, that were tapped into that were um, uh, attractive, appealing uh, to uh, white Americans in, in earlier in our history. Yeah. So as I was looking through a lot of these old documents, so we're talking you know, old newspapers with, you know, a print advertisement in the newspaper itself. Um, and I noticed that there were advertisements that actually looked like news stories um, that w- would potentially be difficult to recognized as an advertisement in a lot of newspapers. And then there were pamphlets that this company circulated, booklets, um, including some that almost looked like magazines or journals. And a couple of the themes that I noticed recurring in these advertisements were, I noticed them and I thought, these are really problematic. These are um, shaping the narrative in a way that makes it more difficult for members of Native nations to actually, you know, be, be in control of their own narratives. And so one of them was that this company really presented itself as the authority on Native healing practices. And I there's a term that I talk about. It's kind of a technical term, um, and it's cultural supersession. And it's this idea that a culture comes in and kind of takes over a, another culture and tries to claim it as their own and claim that it's sort of newer and and better. And so this is something that a lot of scholars of indigenous studies have pointed out with regard to um, to American, to U.S. culture, to American culture, and the ways that um, Native history plays a role in sort of broader U.S. history. And so basically these, you know, cultural outsiders came in and said, you know, we are the authorities on traditional 
indigenous healing practices. And that is something that they re repeated in different ways, really, you know, staked a claim and suggested that they were um, the ones who knew the most about these medicines. So that was one. And then the other um, narrative that I noticed was one in which um, a lot of these kind of news type stories were presenting this idea that the native people that native people that were featured in these stories were very happy to give up their knowledge for non-natives and prim primarily you know white folks so that it, there was a suggestion that um, that there was um, like one of the advertisements showed a picture of a a white person in a burning building and there is a visibly kind of like a, a stereotypical plains person who is cl climbing a ladder to rescue this person in the fiery building. And so there was another, there was another um, story that suggested that um, this is Pocahontas, it, that, that, um, that those people, that the people that are providing this knowledge about their you know, secret remedies are happy to sacrifice their knowledge for outsiders. And that was a really shocking narrative to me that, that came up over and over again. And again, this presents this idea that, you know, that indigenous healers, that they are very happy to sacrifice their knowledge, to give it away to others, and that, um, you know, non-native consumers should gladly buy these remedies because they were, you know, they were being freely offered. Uh, but again, that goes back to the historical discrepancy because this was this time in which um, a lot of Native people are not able to actually freely practice their own traditions. And so that narrative of this narrative of sacrifice um, really, really caught my eye as something that this company was trying to sell to justify its practices that was actually you know, very much in contrast with what native people at the time were were, were experiencing mm -hmm. bring us into the 20th century with this the themes you've been exploring here uh, something uh, mentioned in your paper the 1906 pure food and drug act what was that about how did that impact uh, this movement of sort of pseudo indian medicine yeah, so that was a point in which the early 1900s, um, when there was a crackdown on these types of companies, um, there were, there, you know, this law was passed that basically said that you, um, you have to, you have to actually have an accurate label on your bottles if you're trying to sell medicines. And so a lot of these companies ended up um, fading away because they, you know, they they just couldn't, um, whatever they were trying to sell was not what they actually claimed it was. And so you saw, you know, this this company, the Kickapoo Indian Medicine Company, it, you know, ran out of, you know, was no longer in business. Um, but there are ways that some of these trends have continued. Um, so mm -hmm. you see nowadays there's still this interest in kind of natural remedies and um, there are still instances in which, um, you know, people claim that they're non-native people claim that they're drawing on um, indigenous practices or remedies and are trying to market them to outsiders. Um, and so this is this continues to this day. And so I, w when I'm teaching this topic with students, there are a number of more contemporary examples that we examine um, from companies trying to sell you know, kits, basically like spirituality kits um, yeah. that have that, you know, have no connection to actually, you know, actual native nations. 
Right. I, I have a couple of experiences, uh, Sarah, uh, I could share briefly here because I've been, you know, uh, lured into this. I'll just say a few years ago I had a, was, you know, part of a sweat lodge ceremony. I really thought I was close to meeting my maker because it was, we were encouraged to stay in there. There are 20 of us in this superheated sweat lodge with superheated stones in the middle of it. And we were encouraged not to disturb the, whatever, the spirituality by leaving, even if we were uncomfortable. Um, and and um, I I really thought I was close to passing out. And as it turned out, I don't know if it was a few weeks or a few months after doing that, that uh, th- that experience that there was in the news, and you may have researched this, in 2009, a, a couple people died in Arizona, and many were hospitalized with a so-called New Age spiritual warrior retreat. So that's one example, mm-hmm. isn't it? Yes, exactly. And, and so, I mean, this goes to show that that these um, when people who don't know what they're doing try to mm-hmm. you know, appropriate these practices, that it can be dangerous. Not only is it um, extracting knowledge from another culture, but carrying out in a way that actually can bring harm to those who are trying to um, to engage in it. Yeah. Another instance was, this is when I lived in Europe, we had someone who had a ceremony and was touting ear candles. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure if they have a, a their roots in any Native American tradition, but perhaps they do. But this is definitely in the category of, of New Age, right? And sort of mm-hmm. lighting a, a wax candle, so to speak, a, a long sort of waxy thing, putting it in your ear, you're laying on the floor, and it's supposed to remove earwax and toxins and all kinds of things, which mm-hmm. it's, it's completely bogus as far as I know. So mm-hmm. I don't know. So, so all, I mean, I don't know if you have any experiences with New Age remedies, and that's what drew you to this, uh, this type of um, research at all. But I think most people do, right? Yeah, I think that, I mean, that's, and that's one of the things that I wanted to point out is that, you know, sometimes there is this assumption that, only, you know, it's there's only a few people. There's, you know, sometimes New Agers are presented as kind of out, cultural outsiders themselves and that this is a, um, a phenomenon that is limited to a smaller part of the population. But these practices are increasingly popular and um, anything, yeah, from the prolifer the proliferation of dream catchers, for example, um, that's become almost become you know something that you can find anywhere. And so there are ways that some of these symbols and and ideas have become you know more broadly popular. But I think it's rare for folks who are not in these cultures to be you know to ask questions: Where did this actually come from? And um, is this a, is this acceptable for me to, to be? Um, doing this it's um because it's in because you know for a long time there have been these narratives that um that people are happy to share their traditions i think that's how it kind of continues yes absolutely you're right on uh, sarah dees my guest assistant professor of american religions at iowa state university uh, and um uh, talking about a cultural appropriation she's been examining in a recent paper and, and i think this will be feeding into a, a book coming up um so-called indian remedies from the 1800s appropriated and um and, and uh, the, the narrative sort of twisted uh, and uh, uh her article published in the journal american religion 
Um, and uh, Sarah, let's add one more person to our conversation here for the last few minutes. Uh, Sikawas Nobis is with us as well. Uh, Sikawas is a citizen of the George Gordon First Nation. She is Plains Cree and Salto, also executive director of the Great Plains Action Society. Sikawas, welcome to our program. Hello, thank you for having me. Uh, before we have you chime in with your thoughts on this area of appropriation, I wanted to have you uh, acquaint us uh, with your society, your background. Uh, you founded this Great Plains Action Society. Why was it founded and what are its goals? Uh, I, I founded Great Plains Action Society after I graduated from the University of Iowa. I was expecting to go back to Canada, actually, to uh finished my PhD there, um, but I decided uh, to stay here um, and uh, because of uh, personal reasons, children, you know, uh, homes, things like that, and uh, found it to be quite a lonely place compared to where I come from, where there's just so many Indigenous people, uh, and realized that there needed to be a voice here, not just for the people, um, but for the land and um, for the, the climate, as Iowa is... Um, uh, big egg sacrifice zone. And so uh, beyond just that, though, um, we have, uh, you know, we work in, in other realms like social justice and, and representation um, and have spoken about uh, issues uh, like um, Sarah has written about in our representation initiative. Give us your view on on some of the things that Sarah said. You've been listening uh, along here uh, as uh, someone who is Native American. What is your your take on this and how it perhaps exists into the present? And the, the, the harm, I guess we didn't really dig into this, the harm, some people may say, so what is the harm of uh, appropriating culture? If it's, people find it's appealing, if it's cool, what's the, what's the problem? Um, it's completely harmful and it needs to stop. And, um, I, as an indigenous person, as a Plains Cree and Salto person, um, you know, I, I have suffered from what, um, Sarah was talking about in terms of lack of culture or culture being taken from us, uh, traditions being stripped away. Um, and you know, my, both my grandparents were in, um, residential schools. My aunt was in residential schools. My cousin was in a residential school, also known as a boarding school down here. And, um, you know, so that means I'm old enough to have been in one because the one on my reservation was the longest lasting residential school in Canada. And, uh, they were, I mean, beyond harmful. I don't even know if there's really words to describe how vicious and, um, violent these places were. Yeah, tell us specifically about the harm so that we can understand it. Yeah, so I was actually about to get to that. So um, the harms that were perpetuated um, are are intergenerational at this point, um, and 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 the lack of culture that was you know that we have now or that that we're getting back um, is be- has a lot to do with these schools. And so, um, you know, the Kickapoo Indian, uh, medicine company was around during the assimilation area, which is like also the height of the boarding school area era. And, um, the, this, this is like such a obvious connection you can make here for the flagrant, uh, dis- um, the, how they flagrantly disregarded indigenous agency, you know, and, and and how this imperialist arrogance is so obvious. Because while children were being tortured, raped, and murdered in internment camps masquerading as boarding schools, 
you know, uh, with the goal mm. of civilizing them in the image of Euro-Christian um, identities and erasing um, indigenous cultures and traditions. Companies like the Kickapoo Indian Medicine Company were um, picking aspects, you know, of of our cultures and traditions that suited them and packaging them for profit. I'm almost like shopping in a grocery store, right? And they were tokenizing and very importantly, whitewashing important medicines and practices for consumption of white settler invaders, um, the majority of whom uh, knew like knew nothing real about indigenous peoples. They were ignorant. Um, they didn't know anything about the people behind the product. Um, and in fact, at that point, you know, most settler invaders um, at the time only knew myths and, and racist lies about the tribes. Um, whose lands they were squatting on and, and, and stealing the medicine from. So mm-hmm. from an indigenous perspective, um, like I find new ageism to be um, uh, an insult, uh, adding insult to injury of indigenous peoples. What do you see in the future? What are your hopes for the future um, and, and the hurdles uh, that you would have to go over to, to, to get there in in this field that we're sort of narrowly focusing on, and I know your your society deals with a lot more than cultural appropriation, Sakawas. I'd like to see reparations. I think that people that have um, benefited uh, intergenerationally um, and built cultural wealth over generations, for instance, like that's, I guess that's what I'm trying to say, um, that they should, um, you know, pay back like what, what they've, um, what they've gotten off of um, basically uh, the loss of culture, language, um, and lives uh, of Indigenous people and land. And um, so I'd like to see something like that. I'd like to see uh, something akin to the Native American uh, Arts and Culture Act, uh, where people can no longer also peddle um, their uh, new age religion um, that uh, has aspects of indigenous uh, religion and culture in it. And um, even something that would start to, um, that would, that would put a stop to indigenous uh, identity theft, because that actually is a really huge part of um, this uh, new age, um, uh, these new age, uh, uses uh, of, of of our medicines and cultures is there's also like an identity part to it. A lot of folks, uh, white folks in particular, uh, don't have a, like they're, they're looking for that connection to the land. They're looking for that, you know, identity because there's a hole, you know, in the American, in American culture. We don't really know what American culture is. And so a lot of people play Indian. Um, I would refer to Philip Deloria's book called Playing Indian, which gives a good history of that. And um, and so, like, we, we really need to stop that. It's, it's quite dangerous, actually. A lot of people are benefiting off of it, going to school for it, you know, getting jobs for it, um, and uh, basically um, making it so that it's harder for, you know, uh, legitimate Indigenous people uh, to, to do these things. We have to take another break. Uh, we'll be back in just a moment uh, with Sikawas Nobis, a citizen of the George Gordon First Nation. Uh, she is Plains Cree and Salto, executive director of the Great Plains Action Society. Also with us, Sarah Dees of Iowa State University. Uh, she's a religious scholar. Uh, fascinating conversation uh, yet to come. We'll be back after a short break. It's River Can we heal the environment? In Kansas, we're working on it. 
Up From Dust is a podcast about how humans reshaped the world to fit urban landscapes and agricultural needs. We'll meet the people who are rolling up their sleeves to find more sustainable ways forward. Listen to Up From Dust from KCUR, part of the NPR Network. River from IPR News. You're listening to an archive edition of River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. We're talking today about uh, issues connected with cultural appropriation, the harm that it does. Uh, and uh, Sarah Dees is with us of Iowa State University, uh, a religious scholar there, written a paper called Before and Beyond the New Age, Historical Appropriation of Native Medicine and Spirituality. Also, Sakawa Snobis, uh, a citizen of the George Gordon First Nation. Uh, she is Plains Cree and Salto and executive director of the Great Plains Action Society. Sarah Dees, to you, uh, we heard a lot of, uh, of interesting things about the harm of cultural appropriation, the boarding schools that Sakawas had to say before the break. I-, I wonder if you could react to that. Perhaps there's some areas that you'd like to have her talk more about. Yes. Oh, thank you so much, Sakawas, for all of your statements and for, for all of what you've offered. And one of the things that I was wondering if you could say more about was um, the boarding schools, because that's something that I I talk about in sort of the larger work that I do. Um, But I think that this is something that's been in the news lately. So people are becoming a little bit more aware of it. But can you um, explain how the boarding schools fit in with the broader U.S. assimilation policies? And this was sorry. And also um, policies that were also going on in Canada as well. Hmm. Yeah. I, I I mentioned them because I mean it seems so uh, it seems like the most obvious point to make when talking about mm-hmm. the uh, the rise of New Ageism during the height of uh, the boarding school era uh, when culture was being stripped away from us right uh, through our children and through the a genocide of our children in these what I call internment camps that were boarding schools. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, I don't even know what the correct word for that is. I don't even think uh, irony fits, right? It's just a, mm. it's just a horrific thing. And it's a, a very, um, <clears throat> very sad, very sad uh, time. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, the reason I, I, I mentioned them uh, as well is because recently um, in Canada, uh, the bodies of uh, children, thousands of children have been uh found, I guess. Uh, and they're all surrounding these boarding schools. Um, these children were murdered um, and unceremoniously dumped into the ground, like not even a grave, right? Uh, sometimes mass graves, um, you know, any age from newborn to, you know, uh, adult, uh, you know, just due to the, the severity of the abuse that they um, receive there, uh, not just physical, but um, sexual. Um, but that's why, you know, of course, there are, there are, are newborn babies in these graves um, and and just uh, some pretty severe stuff going on. And so and it just it just it, as an indigenous person, it just like absolutely like hurts and blows my mind at the mm-hmm. same time to think that people were just picking and choosing uh, mm-hmm. boutique style, you know, different, uh, you know, uh, cultural aspects um, of of our of our life ways uh, just to consume uh, uh, either for the fun of it or for what they considered for their own healing purposes. And, and, and this, and, you know, I'm an example of somebody that like, you know, like we w- comes from a, a, 
a family that lost their culture. Both my grandparents, like I said, went to boarding school, so a lot was lost. And actually, it's why I uh, went into religious studies uh, because I am firstly I'm fascinated with how religion um, is like a the underpinning of so much of what happens in this world, mm. um, particularly uh, Christianity. But also wanted to learn so much more about my own religion. Um, which is why I focused on Native American religion and culture um, and did write papers on New Ageism, you know, um, and, and and other aspects of, of uh, stolen culture. And so, um, you know, like this is why I have my master's degree in religious studies and this is why we have Great Plains Action Society and why we have a representation uh, initiative as part of our work because this is such an important uh, part uh, of the indigenous um, <clears throat> struggle uh, to overcome oppression uh, is to overcome, <clears throat> excuse me, tokenizing, romanticize, tokenization, romanticization, uh, whitewashing, um, and erasure, um, all very important um, aspects that we need to overcome. And then also to include indigenous people um, in the important conversations to bring back our agency and uh, to hear, uh, uh, you know, our voices in uh, important matters. And so that's why um, uh, we have this in particular initiative as part of um, our organization. Mm -hmm. So, Sarah Dees, when you hear that from a Native American, uh, you know, uh, that must be um, interesting to tie into your uh, your research, your to, to be clear, Sarah, you're not you're not Native American, or are you at all? No, that's correct. Mm-hmm. I'm not mm-hmm. Native. This is absolutely what we need to be thinking about and taking seriously. These you know calls on the part of you know, people who have been directly affected by these policies, um, and and listen and try to understand that their perspectives. Um, I think that sometimes people who are not Native. Don't, you know, think about, um, you know, ideas and images and, and, and pictures and stories and um, maybe don't, maybe might not make initially these connections to these really destructive and damaging and violent histories. Um, but I think that one of the reasons that I wanted to do this work is because I'm interested in the way that that stories and narratives actually are connected and to policies and to, you know, people's ability to actually, you know, have agency and represent themselves. And so and that's one of the the, um, the elements that I, I want people to be thinking about is, you know, ideas, ideas matter and can have like real world, um, real world, um, <laughs> I'm trying to think of the word, um, outcomes um, that can be. Yeah. Um, that can really affect communities. As we get toward the end of this conversation, I wanted to ask, I, I have to believe those listening have this, you know, as we talk about appropriation and all the the, the bad things that can stem from, uh, fr- from that practice, uh, historical and cultural appropriation, when we talk about it going back generations. But a natural question to ask here, and I want to put this to you first of all, Sakawas, and then to you, Sarah, is uh, when we talk about appropriation, uh, and then there's also appreciation. Many would say that by appropriating a practice, you know, they are appreciating it. And those are two different things. Help us understand the line between appreciation and appropriation. 
uh, advice for those who do not wish to appropriate culture, but do wish to appreciate it and somehow share it and take part of it, deeply understand it? Um, I would like to give the example of the Washington Redskins and the many fans and uh, the company itself that said that they were um, appreciating Indigenous peoples um, with their uh, incredibly racist mascot. Um, and, you know, how there are still many racist mascots around the country um, and folks saying that, you know, by using them, we're, they're honoring Indigenous people. No, they absolutely are not. Um, and if you want to honor uh, and appreciate Indigenous people, um, uh, you know, do it in other ways, um, uh, please. <laughs> um, and, yeah, what, what, would, what would be, Sakawas, what would be those other ways? The Redskins is a glaring example of what we don't want to do. That's on one end of the spectrum where go to the other side and say, what, what would be the ways that we could honor and appreciate, say, Native American culture as a white person? So indigenous people face the highest rates of um, uh, murder, um, disappearances, uh, you know, youth suicide rates, uh, you know, things like that. Like very, we, we face a lot of uh, colonial violence still. We also face um, high rates of poverty, you know, so on and so forth. Uh, for example, in Sioux City, um, the indigenous population makes up two to three percent um, of the overall population, but 45 to 63 percent of the houseless population. So that's just one example right here in, right here in Iowa. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and so, like, how you can appreciate indigenous people um, uh, and their culture is firstly to get to know the people in your community or the, the, you know, the local tribe near you. And, and know what they're doing to solve these problems and, and see how you can do to, to help. Um, and then secondly, you know, powwows are always places that, like, you know, that everybody is welcome uh, to come and learn and meet and, uh, and, and, and watch and, and uh, you know, and somewhat take part, like, in the, in the, in the, in the culture. Um, and then, you know, also, like, lastly, like, fight for what's right, you know, like, do, do something. Um, you know, right now, uh, the state of Iowa has banned uh, critical race theory, also known as diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, and that is, is a huge blow, because what that's doing is not allowing the truth to be told, not allowing real history to be um, taught to children, mm. and that's doing us a huge disservice. Uh, textbooks already don't teach the truth. Textbooks have already uh, whitewashed the truth, and so we're already, you know, dealing with that. Another example is uh, Truthgiving. You can go to our, one of our other websites, truthgiving.org, and understand about the myth of um, Truthgiving uh, and learn how to, how to like, still celebrate, you know, your Thanksgiving dinner, but also tell the truth about what really happened. Um, so there's so many things that people can do. Um, and then also, in the end, there's reparations. How much general, generational wealth have, you, have people attained um, from stolen land? Um, you know, what can we do to, um, to create equity uh, in this world? Um, and people can ask themselves those hard questions um, and, and, uh, and, and try to make uh, change. Right. Sakawa's a lot of food for thought here. Back to you, uh, Sarah. I don't know if you want to comment on that question, appreciation versus appropriation. And I wanted to ask you, too, on the way out about wh- where this is taking you in your research. But, but go ahead, Sarah. Yeah, well, I'll say in addition to everything that Sakawa's already mentioned, um, you know, I know that there there are ways that, you know, sometimes there are non-Native folks who are interested in 
um, my story, indigenous stories or art forms. And so one thing that I always like to emphasize is that if you if you're interested in, you know, that aesthetic, um, go to indigenous creators, go to the artists, go to the musicians, go to um, the writers. And there is just a wealth of um, of of materials out there that you can read and that you can learn and, you know, go to those community members to find out about, you know, their perspectives on issues. Um, because I think now more than ever, there are, um, there are, there's more material out there um, for everyone to, to learn about. Mm-hmm. And, and to tell us about the, the book that you are writing, Sarah, uh, I understand res- uh, on, on research within the Smithsonian Institution on uh, indigenous uh, traditions. Tell us about it. Yeah, so more broadly, I'm working on this book that looks at the history of the study of indigenous religions in the United States. Um, so the Smithsonian Institution, of course, we know it as this big national museum, um, but they had research offices um, from the late 1800s that was engaged in research on Native communities. And so one of the broader things that I study is the way that you know these scientists were engaged in constructing knowledge about Native communities, um, but they were also advocates of these assimilation policies that we've been talking about. And so we you know, when going back and looking at this, these sources, um, I'm looking at the ways that these scholars described religious practices and talked about Native cultures and thinking very critically about the, the aims of the government at that time. And so what I'm wanting to show is that some of this historical material that we have is quite biased and we can't take it at face value. And we need to think very carefully about who's producing the knowledge and what the overall um, goals that they have are. Um, so I, I'm studying a lot of these historical anthropological sources and trying to understand how notions of religion have changed over time um, and how ideas about indigenous religions, even that term and that concept itself, has changed over time. Mm-hmm. And, and Sarah, are your your students, uh, are you working with students on these projects in this general field? I'm wondering how younger people are reacting uh, to your research and, and uh, you know, learning about all of this, opening your eyes to something that uh, a lot of our culture, a lot of the history that we're taught in school is just, uh, we're, we're not seeing it all, and we haven't for decades, right? Exactly. And as Sakawas was saying, a lot of times, you know, history has been written by those who have, you know, had the ability to, you know, to do it. And so one of the things that my students um, have, have commented on in my classes on, on Native American religions is that they just didn't understand. They didn't even know. They were never taught um, these histories. So we, we go through these eras. We go through um, the, the eras in which Native practices were suppressed. We talk about the history of boarding schools. And a lot of my students are, are just flabbergasted and they can't believe that they hadn't learned these things before. And so mm-hmm. I know it, I think that it opens a lot of people's eyes and helps students just try to think more carefully about the narratives that they've been they've been given and how that they themselves can engage in more sort of careful um, study to be open and to be curious to um, to where they're getting their sources from and how they can actually try to understand perspectives of those who um, whose voices have really been suppressed throughout history. 
Yeah. And Sakawas, before we go, uh, is this the way forward, just raising awareness and having younger people, um, certainly older people, learn about this, but younger people uh, recognize what the past really is regarding Native American culture here and how it was Oh, taught. yeah. I, I agree. I like to quote um, from an elder uh, uh, that told me like something a, uh, a while back um, that we should really listen to the youth and our elders because everybody in between is confused. So um, I think that we really need to um, start uh, educating, uh, you know, young folks, um, you know, children about like the truths and so they can grow up um, uh, not ignorant um, and, and do the right things. Mm-hmm. And Sikawas, how will you, you mentioned the initiatives. Um, what do you feel your progress is on your, uh, the initiatives that you have uh, in the uh, Great Plains Action Society? Uh, well, we have three of them. We have um, our land back, or sorry, uh, it is land back, in, uh, in, I guess, inevitably. Um, it's our land defense initiative, um, our uh, Protect the Sacred, which is ending colonial violence to indigenous people, and then um, our representation initiative. And um, I feel like all three of these initiatives are moving forward in a good way and, and uh, we're getting a, a lot done and more and more people are uh, coming to us now for information and, um, uh, you know, to, to collaborate with. So I think that's a good thing. Okay. Uh, Sakawas Nobis uh, is a Plains Cree and Salto, Executive Director of uh, the Great Plains Action Society. Uh, Sakawas and Sarah Dees, uh, religious scholar of Iowa State University. What a fascinating conversation. Thank you both for spending the hour with us. Sakawas and Sarah, take care. Thank, Thank you so much. Us. Today's program was produced by Samantha McIntosh. Our executive producer is Catherine Perkins. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us.